Hello everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show about anarchism, cooperation, non-domination, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This episode will be appearing towards the end, although hopefully not at the very end of my series of episodes in the first half of 2023, and it's setting up what I hope to be a big project, a project that will take more than a year that will start sometime, hopefully, in the second half of 2023 and continue, which is a series on David Graeber's monumental book, Debt. A book that put Graeber on the map, changed everything for me about the understanding of money, set the stage for so much of the work that I have been doing, and yet, as I talk to people, many people have not actually read it and made it all the way through. So I thought I could do people a service by sharing what's in debt and do people a service by trying to convince them to read the book debt. So I'm going to do essentially a book club month by month. I'm going to do like a scholarly introduction to each chapter of the book. And then I'm going to try and have a guest discuss that chapter of the book. This is a huge undertaking. I'm going to be working on it for months before the first episode comes out, which is why the show is going to go on hiatus. Uh, I I got this idea to a certain extent from uh, Cliff Marks' uh, series on Plato's The Republic, which is in Good in Theory. Uh, I know you've heard from Cliff on this show. I cannot recommend this enough. Go listen to Good in Theory, and especially the stuff on The Republic and the Ancient Greeks, while you are waiting for me to get this series off the ground. So here's a taste. This can be like an introduction to the series. It is an explanation of the ideas behind debt, behind what's often called modern monetary theory or MMT, although I don't love all of the ideas that are now associated with MMT. But this will get us rolling on this project, give you something to look forward to, and is kind of a test run. So instead of a chapter of debt, I am going to do an article that Graeber wrote in 2019, not long before he died, called Against Economics. And the theory of Against Economics is that the field of economics is wrong about everything, which is an idea I know you've heard from me on this show. Debt, really, is the history of economics being wrong about everything. Against Economics is a kind of summing up an abstract, a where things stand now with the field of economics being wrong about everything. So let's do this. What is wrong with the field of economics? There are two key problems that Graeber identifies in Against Economics, and the first one you have probably heard, it's been repeated a lot. It's the problem of homo economicus, aka the rational person or economic man. The basic assumption in the field of economics is that people make rational decisions based on money. Everyone knows this isn't true. Every economist knows this isn't true, but they keep persisting with it. If they discarded this belief, that would be the end of the field of economics. So they have to keep it. It's like those pastors who become atheists but keep being pastors. If they admit they're atheists, they are out of a job. And if the field of economics admits that homo economicus isn't real, the entire field is out of a job. 
But we'll come back to Homo economicus, because that's not the one that really threw me for a loop when I read this article. You see, I've been working on UBI and on understanding modern monetary theory and slowly making my way through debt for a while when I first read this piece. But I didn't quite have it down in my head how it all worked. And Graeber, as he so often did, clarified it and put it all together. So the other problem, besides Homo economicus, is that economists don't understand money. Everything they do is based on money. When they discuss productivity, efficiency, gross domestic product, etc., etc., they're always talking about money. If you ask them, they'll say that economics is the study of scarcity or like choices in a time of scarcity, but the way they count everything when they're counting scarcity is money. And they don't actually understand how money works, which seems like a big claim to make. But it's a really easy claim to make because they also don't study how money works. If you listen to the Cory Doctorow episode on Graeber's book Pirate Enlightenment, Doctorow told the joke that if an economist wants to understand how horses work, they don't go study horses. They imagine, what choices would I make if I were a horse? The entire field of economics is based on imagination, not study. So they talk about efficiency and productivity in dollars and cents, but they don't ask where those dollars and cents come from. This would be hilarious. I mean, it kind of is hilarious. But pretty much all public policy is based on economics and their understanding of money. And it is wrong. It's not just wrong, it's provably wrong. Anthropologists keep proving it wrong. The MMT economists are now proving it wrong over and over again as well. And yet economists, and everyone else, because everyone else listens to economists, just keep basing all of the systems in this entire world on this comically wrong idea. Here's Graeber in the piece Against Economics. There is no magic money tree, as Theresa May put it during the snap election of 2017, virtually the only memorable line from one of the most lackluster campaigns in British history. The phrase has been repeated endlessly in the media. Whenever someone asks why the UK is the only country in Western Europe that charges university tuition, or whether it is really necessary to have quite so many people sleeping on the streets. So that's the end of the Graeber quote. This is the answer. When you ask a neoliberal government why people are starving, why don't we just pay for them to have food? The response is, there's no magic money tree. This has an intuitive sense to it. You can't just make up money. I mean, we could make up money and give those poor people money, but that would cause inflation. And then the poor people's money wouldn't be worth enough to buy food and they would just be starving anyway. So let's eliminate the middleman and starve them without causing inflation. This is the neoliberal argument. So the economists have finally figured out that money is, is made up. Everyone knows that paper that has been colored green and had a president put on it is a made up thing or, you know, whatever the color of the money is in your country. But if you make too much money, you get inflation. And when you ask an economist about inflation, they will say it is too many dollars chasing too few goods. And for some reason, they always assume that you can never make more goods. We'll worry about that later. That's not the topic of this episode. So their solution to inflation is to have fewer dollars. But of course, 
since the crisis of 2008 until really quite recently, all the central banks in the world were just making up money like crazy. That's what quantitative easing is. I'm not going to explain how it works. It's a really dumb thing. If you do finally understand how it works, you'll be like, wait, why don't they just like give people money? Essentially, quantitative easing is giving banks money. And despite the fact that they were doing this for more than a decade, they still couldn't cause inflation, which means that the economists are wrong. They claimed quantitative easing would cause inflation. They did it for 12 years. It didn't cause inflation. Now, you still may be thinking, well, but I mean, we still know that governments can't just make up money and give it to people. Um, I don't know why you would be thinking that, because they did make up money, they did give it to people, and it didn't cause inflation. And in fact, you're right. If people, if the government did give money directly to people, there probably would be some inflation. We don't know how much, and it seems like based on what's been happening, not actually that much. We'll get to that. Here's the big problem, and this is the place where Graeber really blew my mind. Even though governments can make money, they can make really as much of it as they want. They don't make most of the money that we are using. It's banks that make money. Here's Graeber. There are plenty of magic money trees in Britain, as there are in any developed economy. They are called banks. Since modern money is simply credit, banks can and do create money literally out of nothing simply by making loans. Almost all of the money circulating in Britain at the moment is bank created in this way. Not only is the public largely unaware of this, but a recent survey by the British research group Positive Money discovered that an astounding 85% of members of parliament had no idea where money really came from. Most appeared to be under the impression that it was produced by the royal mint. Okay, so Graeber is telling us that even the government thinks that the government makes money, at least the par the people in parliament, the people running the government. But it's not true. Banks make money. Banks, not governments. And once you realize this, the entire field of economics falls apart. People spend so much time worrying that the government is making too much money. That's what the inflation arguments about 2022 were about. And the government really isn't making that much money. The banks are. And what's worse, the banks have absolutely no idea how much money they are actually making. Here's Graeber again. Only a minority, mostly heterodox economists, post-Keynesians, and modern money theorists uphold what is called the, quote, credit creation theory of banking, close quote, that bankers simply wave a magic wand and make the money appear, secure in the confidence that even if they hand a client a credit for a million dollars, Ultimately, the recipient will put it back in the bank again so that across the system as a whole, credits and debits will cancel out. Rather than loans being based in deposits, in this view, deposits themselves were the result of loans. Okay, I'm going to stop there before I continue with the quote, because this is probably the crucial thing. Banks make money, and how do they make it? They make it by loaning you a million dollars. They've got two columns. They write in one, one million dollars. Well, sorry, they won't loan you a million dollars. 
because they're assholes. But they will loan other bankers and other rich people a million dollars. They'll write in one column, one million dollars. They'll write in another column, negative one million dollars, and boom, they just created money. Actually, as we'll see, they didn't create a million dollars. They just created two million dollars. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Graeber. The one thing it never seemed to occur to anyone to do was to get a job at a bank and find out what actually happens when someone asks to borrow money. In 2014, a German economist named Richard Werner did exactly that and discovered that, in fact, loan officers do not check their existing funds, reserves, or anything else. They simply create money out of thin air, or, as he preferred to put it, quote, fairy dust. <laughs> okay, so if you were taught how banks make loans, you were taught that, you know, you deposit $1,000 to a bank, and then someone comes the next day and is like, I would like a $1,000 uh, loan to buy a bicycle, and the bank gives your $1,000 to the bicycle guy, and the bicycle guy pays the bank back $100 a month for 12 months, thereby making the bank $1,200. And then when you come and ask for your money, the bank has $1,200, so they give you that 1000 back, and then they have 200 extra. That's how it works. Deposits and loans are the same thing. But, as Werner learned when he went and checked, that's not true. They just make up that $1,000 with a few keystrokes. And banks allow themselves to do that as long as they make up a negative $1,000 at the same time. Ta-da, we've just created money. Let me try and bring this home to you. If you get paid by direct deposit or, or check, anything but cash, where did that money come from? It went into your bank, just from a few keystrokes from someone at another bank. But how did that money get into your employer's bank? Did your employer deposit money into the bank? Or does the bank just create an IOU for your employer, putting money into your account and then putting the same amount of negative money in your employer's account? If Graeber is right, when you get paid, the bank just makes the money up. Or rather, from its point of view, remember, it doesn't make up any money. It puts X dollars in your account and negative X dollars in your employer's account. See, no money was actually being made. It's, it's even, but that's where money comes from. No money is created or destroyed from an accounting perspective, but actually the money has been made up. And if your employer already had X dollars in its account that got transferred to your account, as opposed to the bank making it up at that moment, where did that X dollars come from? It was just made up by a bank in a past loan or a past bond or a past whatever. All of the money goes back to debt and banks are machines that make up debt. And when you make up debt, you make up money. The government is not involved. Deposits are not necessary. Banks make up money. One way or another, the money that went into your account at some point was just made up by a banker because they felt good that if they made up a certain amount of money, but also made up that same amount of negative money, eventually the money and the negative money would cancel each other out and the money would be returned to them. That's it. 
Okay, now I have to take an interlude to make fun of a couple of Cambridge economists, Pontus Rindle and Lucas B. Freund, who simply can't handle this. They got upset with uh, Richard Werner and David Graeber's version of this story, and they decided to explain that it's wrong and banks don't actually just make up money with fairy dust. Here's Rindle and Freund. <laughs> to be known as Pontus and Lucas throughout the rest of this narrative, because that's what they call themselves in their silly story. Here they are. A simple parable helps clarify how banks create money and what the role of asset backing is in that process. Suppose a PhD student new to the British town of Cambridge, let's call him Lucas, would like to celebrate a day's worth of work with a pint at a local pub and pay for the drink by issuing an IOU. Unfortunately, the pub refuses to accept the Lucas IOU. After all, the pub doesn't know Lucas very well, and it can therefore not trust that he will have the ability to repay the IOU at a later point in time. Moreover, a third party, say, a brewery, would not accept the Lucas IOU as payment for their restocking of the pub's beer inventory either. The Lucas IOU is both risky as an asset to hold and worthless for third-party transactions. Fortunately for Lucas, his supervisor, let's call him Pontus, happens to have a lot of trust in Lucas and is willing to accept the Lucas IOU in exchange for a Pontus IOU in return. Here's the crux. The local pub does indeed trust Pontus, and so do the third parties. Oh, it's a Pontus IOU. That's as good as a pound note in my wallet. Lucas can then get his well-deserved drink by paying with the Pontus IOU. And the brewery can restock their inventory by paying with the same means. All right, me again. This, I hope you can see, is exactly the same story told by Graeber and Werner. Exactly the same story. Lucas and Pontus got together and made up some money. Pontus is playing the role of the bank here, and Pontus made up, out of thin air, 10 pounds. He wrote five pounds on two different sheets of paper, kept one, and gave the other to Lucas. One of them says, I owe you five pounds, Pontus. The other one says, I owe you five pounds, Lucas. But they are both five-pound notes. So he made up 10 pounds completely out of nothing. It's not that this was a bad idea. He trusts Lucas, people trust him, etc., etc. It was a good thing. But no money existed, and then all of a sudden, 10 pounds existed just because Pontus wrote a few things on some sheets of paper. Now, back to their story, where they try and debunk the fairy dust. Quoting, seemingly like magic, Pontus has just created money out of thin air but only seemingly. Why would the local pub trust Pontus and treat his IOU as good as money? There are a few reasons. First, they trust his ability to screen Lucas's repayment capacity, so he has a healthy, quote, asset backing up his own IOU. Second, he also happens to have liquid reserves on his savings account. Thus, if the pub asked to have the IOU cleared well before Lucas is able to settle his accounts with Pontus, Pontus can always honor his promises by using those reserves. Has money appeared magically out of thin air? No. Pontus has created an IOU that is treated like money by third parties out of Lucas's repayment capacity, which is equal to a stream of repayments in the future. A stream of repayments is the same as a stream of dividends, so the money Pontus created was out of an asset. If, on the other hand, Pontus were to be so reckless to issue IOUs without the backing of solid assets, 
or if he didn't have access to liquid reserves with which to immediately settle any transactions, the air would suddenly get very thick, and the pub and other parties would soon find out, and his IOUs would lose their value altogether. Okay, I, I'm having a hard time even explaining this because it's, it's laughable. They use this word solid, right? Solid assets. Meaning... <laughs> Pontus imagining that Lucas is going to pay him back. That's the only thing here. Or liquid reserves, meaning money, but we know that money is just IOUs that somebody else made up. There's nothing solid here. There's nothing liquid here. There's just debt that has been made up. And yet, they say that Graeber is wrong because there's something solid here an asset. But there's not an asset. There's just trust, belief, faith. I'm not denying that. That's what credit and debt are. Trust, belief, and faith. If you can make money out of trust, though, you're not making money out of gold or real estate or petroleum reserves. You're making money out of fairy dust. Trust, in this case, is the fairy dust. But if they accept this, the field of economics ends, and since they are economists, they can't accept this. Now let's focus on this word that's holding this whole thing together. Assets. Money is backed by assets, they say. But what's an asset? Here's an easy way to make sense of it. Suppose you go to the bank and deposit $1,000 in the bank. The bank has $1,000 of your money now. You probably think this is an asset for the bank, right? You put $1,000 in there, but it's not. It's a liability because you expect the bank to pay you back when they hold $1,000 of your money. So that means when you give them $1,000, they don't have $1,000. They have negative $1,000. It's an asset for you. In other words, liabilities, which are also known as debt, which are also known as money, are the same things, the mirror image, the yin and the yang, they cannot be separated as assets, also known as credits, also known as money. If the bank lends you $1,000, then they have an asset and you have a liability, so they just made up $2,000, not $1,000. And they called one of them an asset, which you're supposed to be so ignorant about that you think it's a real thing, not a made-up thing, so you think that money is based on real things. So the argument made by Pontus and Lucas, Lucas boils down to money isn't made up because whenever people make up a credit, they also make up an asset. But remember, credits and assets are the exact same thing just in two different columns on the bank sheet or in two different person's hands. They're not just equally made up, although they are, they are the exact same thing. They think that when Lucas and Pontus exchange IOUs, no money is being made up because both an asset and a debt are being created. In fact, both of them are made up and 10 pounds rather than five pounds has just been created. Which brings us to the 2008 financial crisis. In my initial draft of this, I wasn't going to spend time on this crisis, but I decided the Lucas Pontus story 
will illuminate the 2008 financial crisis and the crisis will illuminate the Lucas Pontus story in a way that I could not avoid. So hopefully you've read uh, Paul Krugman's famous explainer of that crisis or seen the movie The Big Short. Both of them, especially The Big Short, do a great job of explaining how it worked. But I think you can see even more the danger of what the banks were up to if you use this Lucas and Pontus example. So what's the asset, the real thing in this case? The asset is a house. Let's call it a condominium in uh, Miami. Now, a house is this real world thing. This condo is real. But remember, assets are made up. So if Lucas, that's our home buyer, wants to buy a Miami condo, but he can't afford to, just like he couldn't afford the pint in the pub. So he's got to get the money from somewhere else. So Pontus, this is our bank, makes up some money and gives it to Lucas who gives it to the owner of the condo. We're going to leave the owner of the condo out of this for now. We're also going to leave Lucas out of it for a bit and focus on Pontus. The bank now has a new liability. They just gave away $300,000 for this condo. Well, for Lucas to buy the condo. So their account now says negative $300,000 in one column. And now they also have a new asset but it's not the condo. Lucas has the condo. The new asset, which is marked $300,000 plus interest, is Lucas's promise to pay the bank back. That's the asset, not the condo. The promise, the trust, the debt, the made up thing is the asset. So what does the bank do now? It could just wait for Lucas to slowly pay it back $300,000 plus interest over 30 years. That would definitely make money. Although over a very long time, it assumes the condo doesn't fall into the Atlantic Ocean. It assumes that Lucas makes his payments. And it assumes that inflation doesn't go up so much that interest is less than inflation. Because if inflation goes above interest, the bank loses money over time. The bank doesn't want to ha run all these risks, and it doesn't want to wait this long. So it sells the IOU to someone else, or loans it out to someone else. The distinction is not important. The crucial thing is that it takes this asset, which remember is just a promise to pay, just an IOU, and sells it or loans it to someone else, thereby <laughs> making two other IOUs, an asset and a credit. So now we've just got these proliferating IOUs. It's hard to keep it straight. I'm going to try. Hopefully I don't have to go back and re-record this. So Lucas has this IOU that he owns the bank. He owes the bank $300,000. The bank is expecting the $300,000 from Lucas, but then they sell it in part or in full to another bank. But when they do that, or to investors or whatever, now they are probably not going to get $300,000, are they? They're going to get an IOU for $300,000 or whatever. So now you've got an asset, which is Lucas's desire to pay, being held by both Lucas's bank and this other bank that has just bought part of it or all of it. And then you have the liability, which is the desire to get the $300,000 back sitting on both of the bank's balance sheets. So we used to have two 
IOUs. Now we've got four IOUs or three IOUs, depending on whether they've completely cleared out their uh, relationship with Lucas when they sell it to the other bank. But there's still three IOUs. You see this? There's the Lucas IOU, bank number one's IOU, and bank number two's IOU. They still total zero dollars. But we've got multiple IOUs where there used to be just two. Then the second bank sells that asset or loans it out or takes a mortgage out on it or takes out a loan to cover their liability. And now we've got more IOUs with a bunch of different interest rates on just that one asset, which remember is not the condo, but Lucas's promise to pay back the $300,000 plus interest. It's actually so much more complicated than this. When they sell these mortgages or turn them into securities or uh, securitize them or whatever you want to say, please ignore the complicated language. It's really just a bunch of selling and buying or borrowing and loaning, which are, again, roughly the same thing. They actually cut up the mortgages in tiny chunks, but then pack them with the tiny chunks of other mortgages. So when you're buying uh, one of these IOUs from <laughs> Lucas's bank, you're actually not buying Lucas's IOU. You're buying one thousandth of the IOU that Lucas owes, but it's packaged with 100 other one thousandth of an IOU from a hundred other condominiums. I think that probably makes it trickier to understand, but I had to put it that way, lest someone accuse me of not knowing that the mortgages were chopped up into tiny bits. So we have this one thing, a promise to pay a certain amount of money back on a condo, and the condo may or may not be worthless. It doesn't actually matter if the condo is worth anything for this purpose. What matters is that Lucas believes it's worth something and that people believe Lucas is going to pay them back. Who knows Lucas at this point? No one. We maybe have a thousand different banks involved in this process. The whole trust aspect is completely lost, and all we've got is fairy dust. Every time this IOU is sold, it's fairy dust. Including the first time, frankly. Because who says that condos are worth $300,000? Bankers say that with their magical sprinkle of $300,000 of fairy dust. And if you don't believe me, have a house appraiser out. And before that appraiser appraises the house, tell them how much a banker has said it was worth in the form of a mortgage. And the appraiser will just appraise it for that amount. Because it's the fairy dust of the banker that makes the money and makes houses worth money. Okay, so we've got this one house, which started off as two IOUs, an asset and a liability, and has now become a million, a trillion, a billion IOUs, all totaling zero dollars. If you tallied it all up in the two ledgers and then added and subtracted, but you can't do that because it's been pushed across so many different entities and with so many different interest rates and schedules of repayments and investors, everyone has completely lost track of Lucas and his initial promise to pay. Then, and you had to know this was coming, Lucas defaults on his mortgage. Lots of Lucas's default on lots of mortgages. But that doesn't hurt the banks that own the asset that is Lucas's ability to pay. This hurts 
all of the banks because all of them have been buying and selling tiny chunks, but in huge amounts, huge numbers of tiny chunks of all of these IOUs. There's thousands of these IOUs. Each time it gets sold, multiple more IOUs were created for each mortgage because it was all fairy dust, right down to the fact that the condo which is the, quote, real thing at the heart of it all, was never worth anything except what a banker's fairy dust said it was worth. And Lucas's desire to repay was simply that, his desire. The banker trusted him, and we built the entire economic system on a desire to repay and a bit of trust to the point that that desire became just a tiny fraction of the money that was being traded based on this condo and yet it was the thing that everything rested on. Hence, the system collapsed because the entire banking system has very, very little to do with what the Lucases of the world are doing with their money and everything to do with what bankers are imagining is a good thing to do with money. And this explains why everything sucks so much right now. Because despite this crisis, we are still running our economy based on this endless system of IOUs made up by banks for banks and for other rich people. Who makes up our money? You know now. Bankers do. And who do they give money to? Other bankers and lots of rich people with maybe one patsy like Lucas way down the chain more or less forgotten about. They forgot about Lucas until the crash happened. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh shit, <laughs> wasn't there supposed to be an asset that this was based on? Some, some $300,000 of that ridiculous amount of money was based on this so-called asset. The rest of it was based on assets of assets of assets of assets or liabilities of liabilities of liabilities of liabilities. Still the same thing. This is why, despite all their efforts, the central banks couldn't create any inflation when they were doing quantitative easing. Because in quantitative easing, they were just giving money to the banks. Now, this did help the banks from falling apart when they made mistakes. But the money never went to any of the people who would spend it. And growth in spending is the way you get inflation. Here's Graeber again. Doubling the amount of gold in a country will have no effect on the price of cheese if you give all the gold to rich people and they just bury it in their yards or use it to make gold-plated submarines. This is incidentally why quantitative easing, the strategy of buying long-term government bonds to put money into circulation, did not work either. What actually matters is spending. All right, so after that bit of Graber, I'm going to leave the 2008 crisis behind and apply all this to the 2022 inflation crisis, which unfortunately Graeber was not around to explain because of his tragic death. Now, according to a conventional economic theory, the solution to inflation is to make it harder for banks to make money. When the central bank raises interest rates, what they're actually controlling is how much it costs banks to lend money to each other. So every time the banks make these IOUs, someone is paying someone else a percentage of that IOU creation. So in the longer term, every time they make those IOUs, they're going to make them a little smaller 
if interest rates have gone up, which means since money is just IOUs made by banks, there will be slightly less money in the economy, which is an excellent solution to inflation if the problem really is too many dollars chasing too few goods. It won't actually help the people in the economy, but it will solve the inflation problem. But only if the problem is actually too many dollars. Now, we don't actually know that the thing that caused the inflation of 2022 was too many dollars chasing too few goods. That's what the orthodox economists would tell you happened. The Biden administration gave money to the poors and then inflation happened. But one problem with that theory is that the pandemic shutdowns happened before this inflation, which affects how many goods we can make. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened during it, which also affected our access to goods. And those two things probably were enough to cause the inflation all by themselves. This is the team transitory argument that you've probably heard. And it keeps looking better and better. For one thing, Europe didn't make up anywhere near as much money to give to poor people during the pandemic and its inflation was generally worse than the United States inflation, which is exactly what you would expect if the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a bigger factor in inflation than, I don't know, making sure that parents could buy food for their children. This inflation probably wasn't caused by loose monetary policy for the simple historical reason that loose monetary policy has basically never caused inflation in history, which is something economists would know if they actually studied history, which they don't. They just imagine what it would be like to be a horse. So if the cause of recent inflation is basically unknown because economics isn't even a tiny bit of a science, but it's probably some combination of the pandemic, pandemic lockdowns, Xi Jinping's zero COVID fetish, and Vladimir Putin's sadistic imperialistic fantasy, we don't need to raise interest rates. We just need to give people money. Just giving people money, remember, doesn't cause inflation. Spending does cause inflation. And yes, that will happen if we give people money who actually need it. They will spend it. But in this case, inflation doesn't actually have to be a bad thing. What's wrong with inflation? If, for example, my beloved universal basic income, if there was a universal basic income tied to inflation so that everyone in the United States got $40,000 a year and that went up with inflation, then the inflationary pressures would mean that inflation kept going up. But in the meantime, everyone in the country would be able to keep affording their rent and buying food. And I think, although this part I can't prove, People would be doing more to make the kind of affordable and healthy food that people would actually buy if they could actually afford to buy food. That's an aside that I should probably leave out, but I just can't resist. In fact, inflation is good for a certain group of people. The people who have debt benefit from inflation. As long as, remember, the government keeps making money and giving you money that keeps up with inflation you'll do better and better with your debt. If you owe $10,000 of student loans and the government gives you $10,000, you can pay off your student loans. But what if inflation happens? You have $10,000 of student loans and what would have been the UBI of $10,000 in 2024 becomes $15,000 in 2025. And the government gives you $15,000, you pay off your debt and you still have $5,000 left over. As long as your income is rising roughly with inflation, inflation is great as long as it doesn't go so high that it destroys the entire system, which we'll worry about that later. 
for anyone who lives off their income and has debt. Who lives off their income and has debt? Everyone. Except for the super rich. This is why people sometimes say modern monetary theory is a fantasy theory in which you can just make up as much money as you want and everyone will have everything they want. Like I just said, there's obviously a point where this doesn't work. And if you pushed it too far, you would collapse the system. We could start by pushing it just a tiny bit far as opposed to not at all. Like if you gave everyone a billion dollars, there would be so much inflation that the entire economy will collapse. The alternate thing and I'm totally fine with this, is you could do a more Keynesian-style UBI by just taxing the super-rich and using that to fund the universal basic income. Then you're not actually making more money. You're keeping the amount of money that's in circulation the same. Fine by me. But our political system will not let us do that. And frankly, if MMT is right, and there's no evidence against it and lots of evidence for it, then we can just skip the conversation about taxes, stop worrying about the national debt, and just make the money that we think we need, as long as we give it to the people who are going to spend it, and as long as we adjust it for inflation to protect people who actually need to use their money to buy food. Right now, the banks make up as much money as they want to do, and no one's worried that they're going to crater the economy because the banks are just giving it to other bankers and other rich people. The government can just do what the banks are doing, but benefit everyone. Of course, the super rich will not allow this either, just like they would not allow their taxes to go up. The super rich are really hurt by inflation. If you owe $1,000 and all of a sudden dollars are worth less, that helps you. If you have $1,000 and dollars are worth less, that hurts you. But nobody has so much money just lying around that inflation can really hurt their money that's lying around if they're a relatively regular person. The only people who have so much money lying around that inflation could hurt their status in society is billionaires. So actually, as long as we understand how money works correctly which is to say we can combat the effects of inflation by just making more money, but only if we make sure that that money goes to the people who will actually spend it on things they need, we can make as much money as we think we need. The only losers in the long run are billionaires and other rentiers living on the big pots of money or other assets. But instead, we do the exact opposite. When inflation goes up, we make interest rates go up, which means that rich people get more money because rich people live off interest. And then the people who need money to buy food, their rent goes up because the rich people are charging them more for their rent. Their mortgages are harder to get. They can't refinance them and food costs more, so those people get screwed by inflation. So if this is completely backwards, why do we do this? For one obvious reason, the rich people have most of the power. But that's not the only answer. Now we're back, according to Graeber, to homo economicus. We do this nonsense thing because that's what the field of economics tells us to do. 
So why don't we just fix the field of economics? Well, because according to the field of economics, it will always fix itself because it will act rationally about money just like everyone else does. Drawing on the work of Robert Skidelsky, Graeber argues that whenever governments act like money is more or less made up, and we can have as much of it as we need to get spending going, things work pretty well. Whenever governments act like money is a real thing and has some sort of natural limit, and try to restrict the amount of money to control the economy, things go badly. And then the two big problems, homo economicus and this misunderstanding of money, collide with one another. Whenever there's a money crisis, it must be some sort of illusion or a blessing in disguise. Because you see, people make rational economic choices, and bankers are people, so they must be making the right decisions with money. So when things go horribly wrong, things must be supposed to go horribly wrong because everyone is acting very rationally about money, which is totally not just a made-up thing. Here's a long quote in which Graeber gives a long quote of Skidelsky, so I'll try and keep it straight who's who. First, Graeber. The problem, as Skidelsky emphasizes, is that if your initial assumptions are absurd, multiplying them a thousandfold will hardly make them less so. Or as Skidelsky puts it rather less gently, and here's a long Skidelsky quote, lunatic premises lead to mad conclusions. The efficient market hypothesis made popular by Eugene Fama is the application of rational expectations to financial markets. The rational expectations hypothesis says that agents optimally utilize all available information about the economy and policy instantly to adjust their expectations. Thus, in the words of Fama, and now this is Graeber quoting Skidelsky quoting Fama, sorry. Quote, in an efficient market, competition among the many intelligent participants leads to a situation where the actual price of a security will be a good estimate of its intrinsic value. Before I resume this quote with Graeber, this takes us back to the condo. You might think that the banker made a huge mistake valuing that Miami condo at $300,000. But according to Fama, you're not allowed to think they made a huge mistake. They must have been right because they're bankers and they got it right. Here's Graeber. In other words, we were obliged to pretend that markets could not by definition be wrong. If in the 1980s, the land on which the imperial compound in Tokyo was built, for example, was valued higher than all of the land in New York City, that would have to be because that was what it was actually worth. If there are deviations, they are purely random, stochastic, and therefore unpredictable, temporary, and ultimately insignificant. In any case, rational actors will quickly step in to sweep up any undervalued stocks. Skidelsky dryly remarks, and here we are quoting Skidelsky again, being quoted by Graeber, There is a paradox here. On the one hand, the theory says there is no point in trying to profit from speculation, because shares are always correctly priced, and their movements cannot be predicted. But on the other hand, if investors did not try to profit, the market would not be efficient because there would be no self-correcting mechanism. <laughs> okay, I'm stepping in here saying, basically, uh, according to economic theory, um, shares will always be correctly priced because investors are speculating. And since shares will always be correctly priced, speculation can never work. So Skidelsky is saying, you see that the basic premise of conventional economic theory, of rational actor theory, is wrong because it proves simultaneously that speculation works and that speculation doesn't work. Secondly, back to Skidelsky, secondly, 
If shares are always correctly priced, bubbles and crises cannot be generated by the market. This attitude leached into policy. Government officials, starting with Alan Greenspan, were unwilling to burst the bubble precisely because they were unwilling to judge that it was a bubble. The efficient market hypothesis made the identification of bubbles impossible because it ruled them out a priori. All right, back to our condo. According to this theory, there was no reason for anyone to worry that the bankers had screwed up by, first of all, trusting Lucas to pay back this condo and valuing this condo for this amount and for selling that asset to create a million other assets because, you know, how could they be wrong? They're always right because money is real and Homo economicus makes good decisions about real money. And that is where we're going to have to leave this. According to economics, bubbles can't happen, crashes can't happen, governments can cause inflation via quantitative easing, etc., etc., etc. All of these are wrong. All of these are provably wrong. And yet, the economists are still running our society. But you don't have to take my word for it. Starting in, well, I hope in the second half of 2023, but we're going to have to see, we are going to go chapter by chapter through Graeber's book, Debt. I hope you will join me for that. I hope you'll read the book. It might be fun to do like a reading club thing on zoom but you'll have to email me email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com if you're interested in doing a thing where we actually discuss the book together me and the listeners and i'll have a number of people come in to talk about debt ideally one chapter a month and so we'll finish debt in about a year at least that's the dream that's what i'm working on all right Now I have to say thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can go to everydayanarchism.com for more from me. You can also really help me as I'm starting up this big series by giving some money. You can also help me by leaving a positive review, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just telling a friend. The show has kept going far longer than I thought it would. It's much more popular than I thought it would be. And that's thanks to all the people who gave and left reviews. And please, please join them if you haven't already in giving or leaving reviews. That will just keep the show going. Finally, the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.